Well, hello and welcome to the Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Aris Komporosos Afanasiu and I teach sociology at University College London. And my name is Max Haven and I am Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University. On this podcast, we speak to people whose research and writing has inspired us to think differently about capitalism and society. Uh, We seek to go beyond medical approaches to mental health and explore the way economic systems both produce and rely on anxiety. This podcast is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project that Aris and I run and is supported by the University College London's Institute for Advanced Studies and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. For more information about this podcast on the broader project, you can visit anxious.community. On this podcast, on this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Arjun Apadurai, uh, Professor Arjun Apadurai. Uh, uh, it's a great honor to have you here uh, with us today. Thank you. Uh, Arjun doesn't need uh, much of an introduction at all, really, but I'll just uh, quickly say uh, a few brief words. Um, he's a social cultural anthropologist and a, a Goddard professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University. Uh, where he's also a senior fellow at the Institute for Public Knowledge. He's a senior professor of anthropology and globalization at at the Hertie School in Berlin, uh, where he is uh, currently joining us from uh, today. Um, Professor Apadure has published a a number of uh, very important books within the field of globalization studies. Uh, Some of them include Modernity at Large in 1996, Fear of Small Numbers, an essay on the geography of anger, in 2006, The Future as a Cultural Fact, Essays on the Global Condition in 2013, and more recently, Banking on Words, The Failure of of Language in the Age of Derivative Finance, which is the book that we will be focusing on uh, our discussion today. Uh, And he also published uh, more recently a book co-authored with uh, Netta Alexander uh, titled Failure in 2019. So, uh, welcome again, Arjun, and thanks. it's a pleasure to have you with us uh, today. Uh, so, let me, we, we, so, as I said, we're going to focus on your book, Banking on Words, today, um, and I will focus on, I will read to uh, our audience uh, some short passages from the book and ask you to uh, sort of unpack more your thoughts uh, uh, that is uh, contained in those passages. But before I do that, I'd like to ask you a question to kick off our discussion, which is to do with our uh, sort of contemporary moment of uh, heightened uncertainty. And, And I was interested in what you think about why, how come financial markets today don't seem to be as anxious as most of us are about the great uncertainty of, of our contemporary moment? Yeah, well, that's a, a question with uh, very important uh, implications for any answer to it. But one very general observation uh, is that financial markets, uh, like all earlier forms of speculative markets uh, benefit from and in a way depend on uncertainty, either by extracting the risk portion and monetizing it or by exploiting the relationship of the uh, 
uh, risk portion to the unknown uncertainty portion. But in any case, they don't abhor uncertainty. One might say they even seek it. So the very general answer would be that, but I, I do think there are uh, likely particular ways, uh, and we can speak about them in the course of our conversation, in which uh, the conversion of many of us to being financial subjects or citizens uh, puts us in, prepares us to also uh, be uh, targets and consumers of the vast amount of numerically based information that is coming at us in the time of corona. And I can say more about that later, but I do think that's even a more specific link between the world of finance um, and the world of subjects who are anxious about this virus. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And I guess what you have done in, in the book that we'll be talking about today is really zoom in uh, in those uh, uh, mechanisms and tools of contemporary finance uh, and, uh, and really show us very clearly how they uh, work uh, to, um, to engage with this uncertain environment and, and, and draw on that for, for profit. So I'd like to, uh, I think it links to the first short passage that I'd like to read you, Arjun, uh, from the book, which talks about, it really defines uh, the derivative, this key financial tool, uh, as, a, as a linguistic uh, as a linguistic tool. And, and uh, so I'll read the passage now. So you write, what the derivative is and what it does are closely tied. The derivative is an asset whose value is based on that of another asset, which could itself be a derivative. In a chain of links that contemporary finance has made indefinitely long, the derivative is above all a linguistic phenomenon since it is primarily a, a referent to something more tangible than itself. It is a proposition or a belief about another object that might itself be similarly derived from yet another similar object. Since the references and associations that compose the derivative chain have no status other than the credibility of their reference to something more tangible than, than themselves, the derivative's claim to value is essentially linguistic. And Arjun, I'd, I'd like, uh, so I think this is, you know, this is really uh, uh, goes into the heart of your, of um, the, the approach that you take in the book uh, towards, the, towards finance. And so I'd like to explain and maybe unpack a bit more for our listeners that might not be as familiar with how, what the derivative is and how it works on, on mm. that point that you make here about its linguistic form. Right. Well, uh, indeed, uh, you've identified in that passage both a very important uh, tool, the derivative for my book, uh, a very important definition from my point of view, and a definition which in a way summarizes the whole argument uh, in a very compressed manner. So uh, I'm certainly happy to try and unpack it a little uh, by saying that this understanding comes to me from a couple of prior assumptions. One is that contemporary finance uh, in its relatively short history has made it extremely profitable to take risk on risk. 
So it is not risk about markets or will you find customers or will your price be right? Those were all known throughout the history of capitalism. But the idea that you can take risk on other risks, which may indirectly and eventually have to do with commodities or with uh, prices or with demand and supply, that becomes subordinate to the fact that you can take risk on another risk. So I think that's the first portion that when you uh, create a kind of uh, ladder of risks, which can be quite long and where the underlying good is itself a risk and then it takes you quite a while to reach something like a commodity or a service or a good or a product, then right away that ladder is composed of ideas, you might say, or concepts or words, things that are said about something else. So, so the first thought to me is that you cannot quickly put your hand on the thing when a financial transaction occurs. In the past, we thought that was about strictly about the fact that financial transactions are about money and therefore they have a slightly immaterial quality. But I think that is slightly distracting because money is always important. And, and of course, Marx identified in MCM right away the one of the complicated dynamic aspects of money in a capitalist economy. But I think with finance, you, you have something more than the kind of fiat quality uh, of money. You actually have this ladder which is made up of references, a chain of references, in which the ultimate final or bedrock product or commodity becomes almost trivially important. Uh, it's important goes, it goes down. So, so that is my uh, second thought. And the third thought comes from the discussion in the book uh, derived from Austin on performatives, which is saying there is certain speech acts, certain things you can say, not all, but certain things like promises or like when a judge pronounces a man and a woman, husband and wife, where the saying is the doing. And that is a very simple way of putting Austin's ideas. He had many, many distinctions and categories and types and subtypes. Uh, but we don't need to dwell on those. I think if we just recognize that sometimes saying something is doing it or changes the world just in the act of uttering, not as a preview or an accompaniment to an action, but where it is itself the action, then all of the vast world of the trading of derivatives not only has the quality of being risk about risk, depending on statements which have to do with other statements about yet other statements, which may finally refer to something real. There is also this Austinian quality that when people make a deal or do a trade, it's largely a, through verbal actions, where in which nothing may move except something else, uh, which is a written thing but where your statement that you agree, or as traders sometimes say, it's done on the phone, means that thing has moved. That value has moved from you to the other party or from the other party to you at some price, but it's only much later that that's all processed in back offices and so on. It's, its reality takes shape the minute 
something like it's done is said. So these are the general features of our financial world. Risk on risk, the fact that that risk to risk chain is itself a matter of reference, not of some physical reality. And thirdly, that trading is done by uh, oral commitments almost entirely. Uh, these are the features that lead me to say what otherwise looks like either an extreme statement, an exaggeration, or a plain error, which is to say that these instruments and the market they are part of cannot be understood except through the lens of language. It, it links to what, what my next uh, question was going to be in the, the next short part I wanted to, to, of the book that I wanted to read, which is the question of uncertainty in this process that you're describing. And uh, you, you talk in the book about this very important distinction uh, which has, has been made in economics and uh, in, in the discipline of economics between risk and uncertainty uh, by Frank Knight, uh, most, most prominently by Keynes as well. Uh, and you dwell on that question of uncertainty in this kind of risk to risk, risk chains that you described in this process of abstraction. Um, and I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit more about that. And I'll read, uh, you have many fascinating sort of historical conversations, uh, uh, sort of analysis of how uncertainty appears in the, work, in the works of uh, Max Weber, for, for example, and this kind of existential mm -hmm. uh, uh, form of uncertainty that yeah. permeates uh, the Weberian Protestant spirit. Um, but you say, I think, if I'm the, if I understood the argument uh, correctly, you, you're arguing that uh, we are experiencing a period where we return to uh, a, a, um, an environment of uncertainty um, through this process of financialization. And you say in this passage that I'm going to read now, um, you say, I would like to argue that the period since the early 1970s, which might be seen as the beginning of the thoroughgoing financialization of capitalism, especially and initially in the United States, is not in fact a moment of unbridled risk-taking, as so many analysts and media observers have been prone to say, especially in the wake of 2009 global meltdown. I would suggest that rather it is a period when the spirit of uncertainty has been reawakened in relation to the unprecedented formalization, abstraction, commercialization of the mas machinery of risk itself. I think this is a very important point here that I'd like you to unpack for us a bit more in relation to that role of uncertainty as you see it um, re-emerging, resurfacing in our current uh, era. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, in a way, throughout the book, I'm trying to both connect and distinguish risk and uncertainty, even outside of uh, the historical context in which Frank Knight made that distinction uh, a technical issue for economics and therefore I think basically gave birth to finance in his work, though there was a long time lag uh, there. So that preoccupation runs throughout the book and maybe even said to be the, the, the central question to which the linguistically perceived derivative is a kind of answer. But the question is, risk and uncertainty, what is their relationship and what has changed about it since uh, 1970? And the first step to that is uh, in a very general way to say what the 1970s to uh, 
various technical developments, but also uh, analytic developments, notably black shoals and a few other things like that, which then grow ever since, uh, that uh, the principle is risk on risk. So to make that operational, even if people had an idea that maybe we can take bets on risk, uh, the way to do it is not was not clear. And what the modeling efforts of people like Black Scholes did was to say, here's a way. And I think what happens starting in the early 70s as a result of these technical and you might say analytic developments is uh, that it become routinely take risk on risk in financial terms and in terms that refer to the real economy at some distance. But one other thing is going on, I think, uh, which is that the, that something which was always uh, a part of the thinking of entrepreneurs, merchants, traders, etc., which is the future. What will happen when? That is, what will happen when my ships reach this new place? What will happen if my ships sink? This is insurance, etc. The future is always involved, but the idea that future unknowns, which are truly uncertain, can be themselves subject to modeling, which can lead to pricing, which can lead to trading, is really a bit of a Copernican revolution. It's not just saying, well, we all face unknowns. Let's make some bets in the form of insurance in case something goes wrong. It's also not saying there's a lot of uncertainty, but some of it I can model, so let me play with that. It's something bigger. It's, it's, it's making the whole, potentially, the whole totality of the economic future, that is the future of prices and values, subject to some form of anticipatory measurement. This is the Copernican revolution, that you, you can't just uh, weigh it, you can price it. So the pricing of options for me, from a layperson's point of view, in many ways I came to this as a layperson, is you can price the future. That's a pretty dramatic thing uh, to say because it's an abstract statement. It's not just saying, you know, this, this rice that I have grown today might be worth X in five years. It's saying my, my lack of knowledge of the price can itself be priced by some model. And that can be then traded with somebody else who has a similar guess or a dissimilar guess and we can have a trade. So I think the big change in the uncertainty business since the 70s is at its core about options pricing and the capacity to model that much better than let's say in the commodities market in the mid 19th century, when you could say there were, it was there, but the tools were very limited. The other thing, which is more a thought that I've had since writing Banking on Words, is that what has happened, what we have starting in the early 70s, but very highly accentuated now, even in regard to, let's say, uh, our relationship to the uncertainties of the, the, the virus, the coronavirus, is that we have a new order of uncertainty produced 
by the incommensurability or lack of trans easy translatability between different risk models. So the more you try and capture in risk with more and more different models, the more and more you have projections, predictions, and so on, which are themselves hard to commensurate and mutually translate. And that's a new kind of, it's not a raw uncertainty of the, I don't know when there'll be a storm. I don't know when there'll be an earthquake. Like it is, I don't know about the amount of uncertainty that is involved in this person's model of risk versus that person or, or the, the results coming from those models. So uncertainty now is an expanding, you might say, it's a bizarrely, and this goes back, I think, to the 70s, when these models become operational, when brokers begin to use them, traders begin to use them, banks begin to use them, later hedge funds and others, that you get a constant expansion of the horizon of uncertainty due to the growing crowding of multiple ways of managing risk. So you have a new mechanism that is producing new orders of uncertainty. Previously, I might say, non-existent. Not just if we couldn't measure them, they didn't exist because we didn't have this massive number of risk-projecting capacities which have different results and numbers attached to them. So uncertainty itself as a sphere, horizon uh, for the future is in a strange way growing. So I think today I would say this, and I don't say to the book because I didn't think it, I didn't realize it, that this was another strange deformation of the relationship between Knightian risk and Knightian uncertainty. Can I, can I jump in for a quick second and ask a, a quick follow-up question here, um, which is that, you know, um, that what, what you're saying reminds me of another, I think, point that, that runs through the book, which is that, that even though you have an increasingly sophisticated and inter-referential apparatus by which um, mm. uh, financiers and derivative traders calculate risk uh, and, and, tr and transform risk into a, a marketable commodity, uh, speculative commodity. Um, and even though that, that apparatus, as you say, kind of maps the totality of social relations increasingly, um, it also then produces, in some cases, unfathomable and uncontrollable risks for many, many people. You know, so if you have yeah. grain derivatives being traded that then somehow tomorrow make the cost of corn 18 yes. times what it was yesterday. Um, yeah. And I, I was curious about how, how, what your thinking is about, about that too, that, that in a certain way, this world of risk management also produces, and, and this is kind of the, the title of our podcast as well, a world of unmanageable risks for all of those who don't necessarily yeah. understand this apparatus or have no access to control over it. That's a marvelous question, a very important one. And one of the reasons I think your uh, theme for this series, which is the question of unmanageable as well as the anxiety question, are much more even on my mind than when I wrote the book, where I was more concerned with what is it, how does it work, how is it used, how does it make money? Not so much what is its downstream effect on our ordinary lives, which was already palpable, of course, in the crisis. All sorts of people were left, you know, in the basement, literally and metaphorically, and had to abandon homes, abandon loans, become, you know, bad debtors and so on and so forth. We know that and we know it's a, it's a continuing reality. 
for many people in different parts of the world, depending on the situation. So I think this is a, a vital issue. And what I would say it calls for is something that I did not think of doing in the book, both because of my aims as well as because of my limitations, which is to run the, the kind of ladder of reference backwards from the top to the bottom, getting close to actual users, buyers, you and me, uh, as opposed to traders and investors, financiers, and so on. And if you run that ladder backwards or downwards from the high-end deals to the everyday customer, I think what you see just flashed into my mind is a kind of, let's call it trickle-down uncertainty. That is to say, uncertainty, which is gamed at the top for profit, turns into uncertainty, which simply produces raw anxiety because it's, it's not a skill-embedded game. You know, it's not about, yes, I have uncertainty, but I, here's my Bloomberg terminal and here's my 10 advisors, five quants. You know, it's just me and, and I'm dealing with price changes or my mortgage interest rate changing or a bank failing along with my mortgage is holding all kinds of things which are both hard to predict and hard to understand for an ordinary person. So I would say we have a kind of downward descent or drip, which can then become a, 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 a tidal wave of effects which when they return to the bottom, because they start at the bottom, as I also try and say in, in the book, I think, that is that the foundation of all this is debt by you and me. That is the stuff out of which this entire market is produced. It's not invented. It's not printed money. It's, it's coming out of our taking debt uh, or going into debt uh, on a massive basis, consumer debt and student debt and medical debt and every other kind of debt. And then, of course, corporate debt, sovereign debt it goes on. That's how it, the stuff gets transmuted into these abstract profit-making forms. But the journey downwards is not just a reverse of that. It is a different process in which the downside outcomes get bounced into more concrete forms, closer to the everyday uh, circulation of goods and services, to our own lives, to our own bank accounts, salaries, wages, prices. And, and but, but we don't know anything about that huge journey up and the journey back down, which produces the effect. So the anxiety, uh, I would certainly say, has at least two dimensions. Um, and the problem of the unmanageable risk, as you put it, one is uh, the lack of knowledge of this mysterious process of which we have some ideas, you know, that something has to do with something else, but we know much more than that. The other one is the things we do know. Will I lose my job is a very concrete question. You don't need financial expertise to understand that. Will I be unable to pay a student loan? Will I be able to afford this surgery, etc.? These are questions everybody uh, knows and most people live uh, with in an atmosphere of severe anxiety. And, and, and if you want to look, or if one wanted to ask, what's the kind of material basis of this vast miasma of uncertainty in terms of anxiety, one would have to say it's the pressure on us all 
both as individuals and even families, communities, uh, even as people pool together, let's say in pension programs in various ways, uh, it's debt. The choice is not available not to be in debt. And once you enter that debt market, which is feeding a finance market, which lives off that debt and then sends its downsides back to you, you're caught in this machine from which you can't easily, you know, step off. You just, you're on it because without that, how can you live? Um, and once you have it, all these other things uh, open up because of the peculiar uh, fragility of the arrangements which uh, keeps massive profit at the top, not to everybody at the top, but always at the top, and the loss is always moving down. So that would be my sense of what is the kind of uh, substructure, the material infrastructure of this anxiety. It's, it's debt. And then the fact that finance does a bunch of illegible things to make profit out of debt. Yeah, and, and actually, Arjun, I think that um, this, and we're coming close to the, uh, to the conclusion, to the end of the podcast, yes. uh, this today's podcast, but I think, you know, this really um, sort of paves the way for, for this final part of the, our discussion, where, where I wanted us to uh, focus a bit more on this new social subject that emerges uh, in, in this current time of uncertainty and anxiety that you were just describing, and which in the book, uh, you refer to us the individual, uh, and I would like so I would like to read a couple of shorter passages that speak to um, that sort of situate the individual as the, the, the social subject uh, in this um, in the context of finance and financialization, and, and also speak about possibilities and and yes. uh, the potential of that subject. So you write. I am referring to a more radical and less visible process whereby the broad social canvas in which the Western individual, both as a category and as social fact, dominated society has been eroded and thinned out in favor of a more elementary level of social agency, which some have called the individual. And you write a bit uh, further down, you say, you write, a radical social theory built on a contemporary definition of the individual has the potential for reintroducing the play of chance into our social lives in a manner that follows all of us, allows, sorry, all of us to engage in the risk-taking possibilities of creating wealth, rather than reserving this privilege to the 1% who reap the rewards of risk-taking, with the rest of us consigned to the status of risk-bearers and collective losers. The radical potential, this radical potential takes a derivative form to be a genuine instrument for the production of wealth in the present by taking risks on the future. But it also requires us to see ourselves as partial, contingent, and volatile beings who can leverage and re-socialize our individuality by exploiting the deep logic of the derivative form. And so I think this is a really beautiful passage and uh, I, I would... And I think for, for, as we're coming to the end of our discussion, I would like us to, I would like to hear from you um, how you see these possibilities that you describe here uh, in the context of, of, of today and the, the, the sort of 
kind of transformations that we, we've just been discussing around death and anxiety and so on. In my uh, book on banking, I tried to identify a potentially progressive idea about the individual who I think is a type of agent that has been produced uh, in a predatory manner by contemporary finance and by a series of other efforts to score, rate, profile, and rank uh, what used to be the individual along very partial uh, dimensions, which gradually have become so pervasive as a form of uh, regulation and exploitation that what we may call the classical individual has essentially uh, been uh, taken off the historical stage. Consequently, my view is that any form of progressive politics that, uh, that tries to restore some classical idea of the uh, individual uh, is doomed to fail, whether it's as uh, classes or races or ethnicities or identities or unions or parties or movements, it doesn't matter. If the bedrock is the classical individual, it's not going to work because the classical, the classical individual, in a sense, no longer exists, certainly in the advanced financialized economies, but to a growing extent, wherever global finance uh, has significant effects. I therefore think that the best way to move forward in a progressive manner is to build a kind of politics around uh, individuals acting uh, together, but not uh, assuming permanent associations or complete stability in these associations because they will not be uh, necessarily permanent in that manner, but they can be very real. Therefore, an example of this would be to uh, participate in the financial market as individuals, but at a very ground level. So that, for example, slum communities in India and elsewhere in the world actually do have the capacity to pool their savings and then to aggregate these pooled savings along with some expert help and then become direct players in the global financial risk markets without uh, handing over all profit to the 1% who extract their debt. Uh, so, and in that instance, it may not be that these slum dwellers or urban poor are acting collectively as old-fashioned individuals who are then aligned in every regard, but they might be aligned, aggregated, and collectivized in regard to a specific activity like savings and risk-taking on the global financial market. Uh, the same is true of other kinds of individual characteristics, such as health or uh, uh, climate or race or housing, 
which we have to recognize no longer involve our entire beings, as the idea of the individual suggests, but some aspect, some dimension, some diacritic, which can produce a kind of crystallized, collectivized individuality. But to go in this direction, we really have to also have a change of mind, not just a change of attitude. And that is to rethink very basic ideas like group, mass, class, faction, party, etc. Every one of these has to be rebuilt from the ground up so as to not smuggle in the fiction of the individual as the foundation of progressive politics. This has been really great to, to, uh, to talk to you about um, the themes of the book and, and have the chance to, to, he to hear your thoughts uh, about sort of the, the present moment as well. Um, and yeah, so I, I'd like to thank you once again, Arjun, for, for joining us today. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, so I don't know, Max, did you want to share your, your thoughts, your immediate kind of thoughts on, on our conversation? Mm -hmm. I was going to ask Arjun to link uh, Banking on Words um, with another book he wrote, uh, roughly, in roughly the same period of research, at least, uh, Fear of Small Numbers. And uh, the, the sort of research question of that book is why it is at, in a moment when allegedly democracy has triumphed over the globe, you have the rise of increasingly uh, violent majoritarian violence against minorities. Um, and it's a really fascinating book, one that was very useful for me when I was um, trying to think through um, the relationship between capitalism and revenge in, in my recent book, Revenge Capitalism. Um, and I, I suppose that I was gonna ask him is to some way link uh, on the one hand, the financialized economy of anxiety that he was speaking about uh, and that he writes about in Banking on Words to the kind of ethno-political anxieties that drive um, the kind of new waves of uh, majoritarian violence. Um, and I think on one level, I can imagine that the, the, the sort of like the, the, the direct answer that I would anticipate um, is, as, as Arjun put it in our interview, that there is this kind of trickle-down uncertainty in the global economy where you have the kind of financial masters of the universe developing increasingly sophisticated and, um, and, and fast methods of calculating, commodifying, trading, and reorganizing risks but that in effect what happens in that system is that as he points it there's a kind of trickle down uncertainty which is that for the vast majority of people who are never going to set foot on a trading floor and never going to see a bloomberg terminal what reality feels like is a cascade of unmanageable risks that constantly come your way that are largely inexplicable in their origin so if you're a farmer let's say and tomorrow the price of the commodity that you grow uh, falls through the basement uh, and you can no longer afford to basically reproduce your, yourself and your family. Um, it's very difficult in an age of greatly uneven access to 
knowledge and education, despite all rumors to the contrary, to understand that the reason that that happened is because some trader in Frankfurt or New York City or Shanghai uh, programmed a supercomputer to trade grain stocks um, as a gamble. Mm-hmm. And as a result, what happens is you, the sort of unscrupulous or opportunistic political forces can then mobilize around these, um, this sense of unmanageable risk and uncontainable uncertainty in order to blame uh, convenient, quote unquote, others. And in, uh, in Arjun's uh, work in Fear of Small Numbers, that that takes the form of this kind of um, kind of paranoia or anxiety over incompleteness, as he calls it, and uh, the incompleteness of the nation state, the incompleteness of the project of the nation state to to wed the state form to ethno national realities, which of course has never been the reality, but is always the dream of the nation state that you could have, you know. Uh, Britain for Britons, or you could have Canada for Canadians, or this idea that, that an, an ethnic reality can match the bounded territories of a state. And this then licenses and gives rise to these incredible forms of sadistic, uh, and I would say like vengeful um, violence. And so that's the answer I would anticipate he would give. But then I also suspect that there might be, um, there might be more work that he could reveal to us because one of the things I think that we are seeing today and that we need to account for um, is that purely materialist uh, and economic explanations for racism are proving themselves to be somewhat insufficient. And I think this, uh, I'll close with this point just to tie it to the current context we're in. And we're recording this now and moving into the, the, uh, the third week, I think, of major uh, demonstrations throughout the United States against the killing of um, George Floyd and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter now is not only an incredible uprising of Black people in the United States, but of a vast uh, coalition of peoples in the United States and indeed around the world. I mean, just thinking about um, Arjun's context of Berlin yesterday, there was a, one of the largest demonstrations I've ever seen in that city that completely packed uh, Alexanderplatz, you know, this huge square. Um, one of the problems with the, res- the response of many um, cultural, social, and economic critics to these demonstrations is that they, the response has tended to say, well, the reason why we have racism in the United States uh, and the reason why racism hurts is economic, ultimately. And, and just to break this down very, very quickly, the one idea is that uh, regardless of the kind of animosity that uh, white people or other people might bear to black people, the real pain of racism is the kind of economic deprivations that black people suffer in the United States. And that's what is really killing people in terms of the, the effects on ill health its effects on people's life chances, it's uh, making uh, black people susceptible to living in certain neighborhoods, um, the prevalence of crime, et cetera, et cetera. And similarly, the argument has been that the reason why there is racism in the United States, especially against black people, is largely economic, which is to say that white people uh, experiencing economic precarity um, are then more racist because they find uh, some solace 
in, in their elevated status above black people in a racial hierarchy, even if they themselves personally feel economically uncertain. Now, those arguments are all valid, and there's a lot of evidence, uh, important evidence to, to um, back them up. But we also need to account, um, as Seti Hartman has pointed out, for something deeper um, or something that is older and travels alongside the kind of anxieties produced by capitalist exploitation and increasingly financialized capitalist exploitation that also has to do with um, a much longer history that is deeply embedded in the, in the combined growth of capitalism with colonialism, with uh, slavery, and with the kind of orders of race making. And the fundamental uncertainties and risks of uh, race that go way back to the origins of capitalism and can't simply be tied to the existential uh, encounter with poverty or uncertainty that financialization produces. They're not, it's not to say that they aren't connected, it's just to ask us for a deeper methodology for connecting um, racism and, uh, and colonialism to capitalism that then can account for the persistence of racist violence within a late capitalist moment. It's explicitly and especially in a late capitalist moment that prides itself on a rhetoric and an illegal apparatus of formal equalities. I think uh, I have little to add, Max. I think that was a great uh, sort of uh, way of connecting our conversation with Arjun with, with uh, what is happening right now, um, the, the, the current uprising that we're experiencing. Um, so uh, I just would like to, at this point, uh, well, thank again, Arjun uh, Apadure for uh, joining us in today's podcast. And uh, also a reminder that we share these episodes via our SoundCloud channel. And uh, if you'd like to send us feedback, you can head over to our website at anxious.community, where you can find our contact details. This episode was produced by me, Aris Komporoza-Safanasiu and Max Haven with the support of the Reimagining Value Action Lab and the Institute for Advanced Studies at University College London. Until the next time, goodbye. Bye now. Mm-hmm.